In brightest day, in darkest night, no crappy film shall escape our sight. It's episode 101 of the Nerd By Word podcast, and we are applying all of our collective willpower to fix 2014's much maligned Green Lantern. The Byword begins now. Greetings from the planet Oa, home to this week's episode of the Nerd by Word podcast, the only podcast chosen by the Guardians of the Universe to correct the fallacies of their cinematic debut. Yes, this week we will try our hand and energy constructs at fixing the 2014 film Green Lantern. But first, it's time for... Dave, don't do this to me. Don't give me hope. Hope for what? It's not like the game is coming out anytime soon, my friend. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there, the, you know, the sequel to uh, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, which is, you know, everybody's referring to as Breath of the Wild 2, but it's pretty clear that's not going to be the title. Uh, it, this is, you know, one of those games that we've been waiting for for a long time, and it keeps getting delayed as Nintendo keeps polishing it. Uh, at this point, you know, the, the release is going to be sometime in 2023. But you got to admit, uh, the big N has done a really, really good job keeping the lid on pretty much anything that has anything to do with this game. Um, but the first crack may have actually appeared in their uh, armor as the Italian voice actor... Um, Pietro Ubaldi was uh, interviewed for Lega Hyrule, a, a YouTube channel. Uh, he's actually the voice actor of the Goron champion Daruk. And in the video, he kind of drops the bombshell very, you know, candidly, actually, that he is reprising the role of Daruk, which is interesting since his character is like, you know, D.E.D. dead. And by the end of the game kind of moves on. Um, but he's also voicing one of Daruk's ancestors as well. And that is where things get extremely interesting. Um, because this implies that we're going to get either some really extended flashbacks to some ancestors, or as has been some speculation now for some time, there might actually be some time travel involved. And this is not you know, something, you know, new to The Legend of Zelda. They have featured time travel uh, plots before, uh, most notably probably in uh, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. So uh, is this a whole lot to go on? No. Is this going to tide us over to 2023? No. But it does offer some tantalizing possibilities of how they may have changed and innovated their gameplay and how the story might be delivered this time because breath of the wild was extremely uh minimalist in its story um you know using recovered memories and all that to kind of tell a the story sort of out of sequence went very non-linear so there's there's a lot of questions about how they're gonna you know tackle some of these things in the sequel but needless to say i'm totally psyched i love breath of the wild and i just want more how do you feel about this chris yeah, and and you know I joke and everything, but like you know in in the day and age of where things are getting pushed back, or unfortunately in contrast, 
rushed to publication and release and having to go under undergo a lot of fixes and bugs and, and debugging and all of that stuff so in all seriousness take all the time that you need i'll be patient i i do want it um i do want to play it but i'm willing to wait for the perfect game because it's going to be hard to follow up breath of the wild so take all the time that you need guys how do you feel about the possibility of having time travel shenanigans in the sequel? Listen, I'm not as well versed in in the Zelda verse as as I would like to be. Breath of the Wild is the only game that I've played to completion. I'm 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 kind of going back and doing some some different games. I played um, a little bit of Link's Awakening. I played um, one of the older, I think the the SNES game on a Link the, to the Past. Yeah, on Switch Online. So. I'm not really familiar with the mythos as much as I'd like to be, but um, I'm, I'm up for anything. And I, I have, after the last game, they have my full trust. Yeah, mine as well. All right, Chris, uh, there, there's not going to be any brother-sister shenanigans in this news story, are there? <laughs> those, those make me nervous. No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, members of the House Targaryen, as well as all Game of Thrones fans, were treated to the first full trailer of the upcoming prequel series, House of the Dragon. The series will focus on all the fire and blood of the dragon-taming Targaryens and is set 200 years before the events of the main series. Many, fan, uh, many fans, including yours truly, still have a sour taste in their mouths from the eighth and final season of Game of Thrones, but hopefully this trailer, and let's be honest, an entirely new creative team, will alleviate some of those anxieties. I'm excited and hopeful for this series or maybe I'm just like Michael Scott and ready to be heard again. The series is set to premiere on HBO Max on August the 21st. Uh, 21st. Dave, last time I checked, you weren't big uh, Thrones guy, but Matt Smith is here. Yeah, and that's that's literally the selling point to me. <laughs> Matt Smith makes everything that he is in better just by like his physical proximity. I'm a big fan of Matt Smith's, although he's done a really... Just a piss poor job picking roles once he left Doctor Who. <laughs> he keeps popping up in the absolute worst situations, you know. Uh, uh, he Dude needs a new agent. Yeah, you're right. I'm not the biggest Game of Thrones guy. I followed the series sort of from the periphery. I didn't really watch it religiously or anything. I checked out a couple of episodes. Um, I, I struggled a little bit getting into it. Um, you know, I have I have this whole like... Uh, thing about like enjoying uplifting media and that stuff got really dark sometimes so i i struggled a little bit you know getting into it i keep hearing that the books are really worth you know reading even more so than watching the tv show you know and and i would like to but then you know our friend george never seems to decide that he's actually going to finish yeah. this and i'm very i'm very troubled about getting into a book series that may never get finished i mean the guy is getting ancient at this point like finish the job before you get dead my friend yeah. you don't want you don't want an unfinished book series to be your legacy but yeah that being said you know it's 200 years before the before the uh you know the game of thrones story um so there's you know not so much baggage maybe i guess um and i'm interested to see how a different creative team tackles it so it looks interesting and then there's you know all the, the matt smith of it all hopefully his agent helped him pick a good one this time see all i need is dragons that that was what you know when they they finally arrived in the latter half of the series i i was i was hooked um i, I i'll be honest i i didn't even watch after the battle of winterfell that was the the high point that i went out on and then i just read the wiki articles of what happened afterwards because i knew i was just gonna be, <laughs> I, I knew i was going to be furious 
So um, I didn't even subject myself to that. So I ended on a high point and just pretended the last five or six episodes never happened. That seems like a smart move from everything I heard, Chris. Good, good decision making on your part. All right, that wraps up nerd news for this week. Be sure to stick around after our first break. We're going to try our best to fix Green Lantern. All right, welcome back to this week's And really, it it had been a while since we did a quote-unquote fix episode, Dave, and I'm so starved for good Green Lantern content on the screen, which it looks like we're going to get in in another animated feature um, from John Semper Jr., uh, who famously was responsible for things like uh, Spider-Man the Animated Series. So there's a new Jon Stewart film that's coming. But um, as far as live-action Green Lantern, it has been bare bones. So... I was like, let's let's try and fix this. So um, as is customary with our fixes of much maligned films, um, we have our three big fixes. So Dave, what is first on your uh, fix list? I think b- before I get too deep into the fixes, it really bears um, kind of remembering uh, where I come from in this whole process in that I'm a huge Green Lantern fan. I've spent uh, a lot of time um, reading Green Lantern comic books. Um, I, I've read, you know, some of the old Hal Jordan stuff. I, I was there for the entire run on Kyle Rayner as the main Green Lantern, uh, was there and was reading actively when Rebirth happened and Hal Jordan came back, have read all that stuff, you know, you know, have read a whole bunch of back issues and things and like Guy Gardner and, and his time with the Justice League International. I, I've spent a lot of time um, reading Green Lantern. I'm a huge fan of the character. So um, I, I come to this from a, a, a background that is steeped, I guess, in Green Lantern comic books. Um, and my first fix, uh, you know, knowing what I know and reading what I've read, is that I think this movie starred the wrong Green Lantern. Now, I know there's a whole contingent of huge Hal Jordan fans, and they're going to you know, they're going to scream bloody murder at this point, but I don't think Hal Jordan was the guy here. Um, I think there would have there have been much, much better methodologies of doing a Green Lantern movie that didn't need to involve Hal Jordan. Um, I think out of all the Green Lanterns, Hal Jordan is the one that has the biggest personality vacuum um, and casting Ryan Reynolds in the role with all due respect to him. Uh, did not help that, although Reynolds is a really affable guy and a good actor and has, you know, a lot of charm and charisma. Hal Jordan, there's just not a lot there on the page as a character. It seems like almost every other Green Lantern character that has come along uh, since Hal Jordan is is more interesting as a personality. Uh, if you were to try to define Hal Jordan as a character, you'd be like, okay, he's he's basically DC's the man without fear. Great. You know, but then you get, you know, John Stewart, the former military man who who questions authority. Now that's an interesting hook. And you got Kyle Rayner, the down on his luck artist, who, you know, gets a ring that can make all his wildest imagination come true, you know, and he's does this earthbound every man. That's an interesting hook. Um you know, it seems like uh, Guy Gardner, the guy with a huge chip on his shoulder, he's kind of a jerk, but there's a heart of gold underneath it all. You know, there's an interesting hook. Um, but 
here's a guy who flies planes and isn't afraid is not much of a hook as far as personality goes. Um, so I, I think there were better movies in skipping over Hal Jordan, perhaps, um, and having him as like, you know, a former Green Lantern that might pop up in a sequel or or whatever. He's out there, but we don't mention him. And we just kind of go straight to like a John Stewart or a Kyle Rayner um, or a Guy Gardner. It just really depends on what kind of movie you're wanting to make. But this movie, I don't think was, I don't think they were quite sure what kind of movie they were making or that they realized that they could have tailored which Green Lantern they use to the kind of movie they're wanting to make. In a lot of ways, this movie felt almost like they were trying to imitate the MCU formula, only I'm not sure what year this came out, if there was even much of an MCU at that point or much of a formula. But there's something really like light and fluffy and jokey about it, which is not the tone of a good Green Lantern story at all. So... I just, I just think that they weren't sure what movie they were making, and they didn't reuse the right Green Lantern, Chris. Yeah, so I, I was really, really interested to do this movie in particular because of your expertise and my lack of knowledge. Um, I've always been enthralled in the idea, even peripherally, of the Green Lantern. It's has always been like one of my go-to things that I've been interested in DC and never really dove into for one reason or another, and so. I also had a bonus, I don't know if it's a fix or a question, because I love Ryan Reynolds. I love him as like the wisecracking, smart and I love him as Deadpool as much as kind of whatever I have about that character, but I love him in films like The Proposals, one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, is he right for this role? Is no, yeah, and, no. and so like, and, and and I don't want to be like blasphemous because he met his now wife, and they're like one of like the few couples in Hollywood that has persisted, and so like that's a beautiful thing. They met on the set of this movie, but like, it just doesn't feel. It feels like he's a square block in a round peg in this movie. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely clear. Ryan Reynolds is, you know, a, a very particular. He exudes a very particular kind of charm, and he gives more Kyle Hal, Rayner than he does Hal Jordan to me, at least in my limited experience. Yeah, you know that that's probably fair. I just there is, dude. I don't know how to say this nicely, but for most of the Hal Jordan stories that I have read, especially in recent years, again, and then you know there was this Hal Jordan was basically a guy with a giant stick up his butt. Okay, he's he was just a you know the straight guy, the the you know pretty humorless you know former military test pilot. Look, you know I'm, I'm fearless, blah blah blah. But but as far as personality, there wasn't much. And then there were some pretty acclaimed runs where they tried to change that a little bit. The biggest one, of course, is Hard Traveling Heroes, where they they had Green Lantern and Green Arrow. And they, you know, they set out to discover the real America, you know, and you get stuff like, you know, very clumsily uh, DC Comics trying to tackle, you know, drug problems, you know, racial issues. And suddenly, you know, Hal Jordan is standing there and he's trying to like, you know, he's being challenged in a way he that the character had never been challenged before. 
I remember that cover where where somebody yeah somebody was like using a needle. I remember that issue. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was Speedy actually. It yeah. was a Green Green Arrow sidekick. Yeah, uh, and there's there's so many you know interesting things that happen that when somebody gets up in their face and challenges this this stick in the mud, that's when he started shining a little bit. But you know, then in recent years, they kind of went back to the, uh, the the personality void a little bit again. Um, and and just just that's just not Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds is it's like he's trying to it's like he's trying to contain who he is in this role, and he's just getting ready to burst at any moment. It's just it it looks like a very uncomfortable performance. It, it also, it's funny that you said something about an MCU film. So this film was released in 2014. This is after timeline wise, you had Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk in 2008. And then this is even after the first Avengers film. So this is even, I want to say 2014 was Captain America Winter Soldier. We were already that far into the MCU. Um, and it's funny that you, you referenced the MCU specifically because I was watching this movie and this is the first time I've watched it since its release. And I was like, this feels like a carbon copy tonally, visually, color scheme wise of The Incredible Hulk, the um, Edward Norton film. Um, down to yeah, the similarities, yeah, down to the similarities between the the leader and Hector, like with the the over the swollen you know brain and 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 the skull. So like it, it was, it just felt like a lot. Like it was just like uh, you know copying the homework of that movie. Well, you know when Hector said he was going to get swole, that's probably not what he had in mind. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it, it totally does feel like it's sort of an attempt to to ape, to mimic uh, the MCU a little bit. And I'm not saying there aren't properties that that tone can work for, but I just don't think it was the right move for Green Lantern of all things. All right, Chris, so what is your first fix? I mean, my first fix is get a, maybe a different Green Lantern in there and just yeah. forget Hal Jordan. So what, what are you thinking? Um, so just overall, very macro, um, I... This movie was not as bad as I remembered it to be, interestingly enough. Um, it definitely has its its sins. Um, and the greatest of which is the atrocious uh, CGI, particularly the suit itself, which you have to, st- in a superhero film, like you'd be hard pressed to find anything more important to get right than the superhero suit itself. And so... Um, I wrote for the love of all that is holy and sacred, use practical effects when possible, especially on the suit. And this is something that we've tackled as far back as, you know, our single digit episodes, right? When we started this show, um, is that, you know, far too many films are relying on computer imaging and that is just not up to snuff. Even even recent films um, that are much more recent than 2014, they are heavily relying on CGI and, you know, whether that is cost effective, a cost effective move, whatever, um, at least give us a a practical effects suit. Uh, Everything looked goofy and cartoonish and bad, particularly the most garish thing for me was the eye color change and the mask was really bad. Um, and I think that is overall the greatest sin of this movie. Yeah, you know what? And I will definitely agree as far as like visual effects goes. Uh, they definitely crapped the bit with that one. 
Um, and I'm sure that the artists involved were doing their best, you know, with time constraints and the budget provided and everything. I, I don't know if, if, if CG in 2014 was ready for that jelly. I don't know if we're ready for that jelly right now. It felt a little like, um, was it, was it Infinity War? Uh, floating floating Bruce Bannerhead in the Hulkbuster armor. Like, you know, when you're trying to join somebody's head with something that looks predominantly computer generated, there's just something very uncomfortable and off about that. And I really can't, I can't see the reasoning behind it other than it might be cheaper or faster. But like the suit is atrocious, man. It's so bad. And, 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 and not just is it bad, it's not even bad in like a comic book accurate kind of way. Like at least they tried to go for the right look. Like there's this weird, like almost veiny looking thing going and on. It's with pul- it. It it's constantly pulse- It's constantly pulsating too. So that doesn't help. So I'm just going to, I'm going to like use comic book logic here for a second and say this. Um, the ring is a limited source of power. Um, it has to be recharged constantly. So why would you do the equivalent of leaving the nightlight on all day? Like, it's got to be draining the battery to have that suit pulsating constantly. Like, that just seems weird to me. But yeah, you know, it's not just the suit, though. Although the suit gets flack, I think, predominantly. I think all the scenes on Oa are really, really, like, almost concept art stage. A lot of the aliens, you know, the the, the alien lanterns look really weird. Uh, Oa itself looks so flat like it's it looks like it's not a real place you know it looks like the cg's half done or something um i think that would have been much better instead of in front of a green screen just to like you know build a set and then you know green screen in the background a little bit more but there's just there was a very clear overuse um of cg and it really hits you in the head as soon as you know you're not on earth I think on Earth, you know, the suit sticks out like a sore thumb, but there's so much real imagery around uh, Hal Jordan that you kind of sink your teeth into. But then when you move him to Oa and there's almost nothing real there, it really smacks you upside the head. The Oa scenes stick out to me as just really, really atrocious, Chris. I'm beginning to think that we're spoiled by Lucasfilm. Because say what you want about the prequels or the sequels, and I know that Star Wars uses practical effects more than most companies uh, and properties do. But even when they use CGI, it's never bad. It is never garishly, distractingly bad. Uh, you know, so there are there are nitpicks and there are fixes that we had to apply with Star Wars films, but it was never that. So maybe maybe get some some pointers from Lucasfilm. What? And then, you know, it's not just that, though. I'm going to tell you now something. And, and I'm sitting here thinking about this hard. Um, I'm a huge fan of Doctor Who, which is literally like a shoestring budget. And, yeah. and that I really think that they're selling shoestrings on the side of the road to raise their budget. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I never am t- as taken aback on, on something like Doctor Who uh, as, I, as I am with something like Green Lantern. And I think what it comes down to is there's a lot of practical effects involved. And even if the makeup doesn't look great, or even if the rubber mask doesn't look great, uh, you know, it's it's real, it, it feels real, and it has weight. And therefore, I am able to suspend my disbelief and say, okay, this is an alien, not some dude in a rubber mask. Like, like I can accept it. But when CG is is shoddy, it's not up to snuff, 
there is just something really uncomfortable about watching it. It's a, there's a weightlessness. It's so flat. I mean, it's very, it's very hard for me to put into words, but it's just like my brain has nothing to latch onto. I cannot suspend disbelief and I just sit there in disbelief and I'm just very, very uncomfortable. And so, you know, I'd rather watch something with cheap or nearly failed practical special effects because I can kind of forgive that as opposed to CG that's not quite up to snuff. I can't really, it's just something in me just can't forgive that, Chris. Well, it's really interesting having said all that because your second fix is something that I wholeheartedly agree with. Yeah, so if you had if you had to boil down the concept of Green Lantern um, and explain it in the quickest, easiest, most understandable way to somebody who has nothing to do with comic books and has never heard of Green Lantern, there is a very, very simple elevator pitch, two words that perfectly describe Green Lantern, space cop. And here's the problem. For the space cop, he ain't in space. He visits Oa for training, which he abandons and then goes straight back to Earth and fiddle-faddles around there. And that is the extent of his space involvement. It's more like a a, a very brief uh, detour. And I think if you're going to make a Green Lantern movie, you have your opening on Earth, and then you whisk Green Lantern away into space, and that's where the action, the most of the action should be. And I'm going to I'm going to be kind of a little smart aleck now, but there's a very, very good animated feature called Green Lantern First Flight. And this animated feature is the superior version of this movie in every single way. And basically, the story is that Hal Jordan gets, you know, gets the ring, gets whisked up into space. And then the bulk of the movie is basically training day in space. And it's ingenious. The structure of it is ingenious. You know, like he gets his basic training and then he has to be like the rookie to Sinestro. And, you know, through the course of the movie, he increasingly notices that Sinestro's methods go against the Green Lantern Code and he has to stand up to him at the end. And it's, it's, it's fantastic. And I think one of the things that makes it work is that that movie leans into the notion of space cop. Let's get, you know, this earthling out into space. He's one of the few, if not the only earthling we see out there and just throw as much weird stuff, alien stuff at this, you know, person as we can. And that's when Hal Jordan works because Hal, because Hal Jordan is the sort of this, this stick in the mud, right? And you take him out of his comfort zone on earth and throw him, you know, into something where he's uncomfortable, you know, these, all these alien worlds and cultures and stuff, and then watch him adapt. And that's when you have an interesting character, you know, the, the way he reacts to those things. But this movie is so focused on just let's get let's get back to Earth as quick as possible that it completely squanders all the potential of Space Cop. I mean, Green Lantern, Hal Jordan is is the Green Lantern of Space Sector two eight one four. He is not the Green Lantern of Earth. He is the Green Lantern of an entire sector of space. He has no business just hanging out on Earth all the time. He should be out there you know, with on other planets and dealing with stuff. And and the fact that this movie completely sideswipes that and doesn't even attempt to be basically a space cop movie, that is that, unforgivable. Well, yeah, and he even, I think there's even a line where he says, like, he's a green space cop. 
or or someone says it to him and then they completely lean out of that and it's it's all the more hilarious because when kilowog at the end says can i train him or can i train him like dude you got your ass beat and then he got his ass beat by sinestro and then dipped like you didn't do anything bro <laughs> that's another sad thing i love kilowog in the uh in the comic book so much and that was not his finest portrayal i would say so so much so many missed opportunities in the green lantern core really there's so many interesting side characters in that um and, and just they're basically reduced to like standing in the background all right, Chris, what is your second fix for Green Lantern? Well, you kind of touched on this of the too many spinning plates thing plot wise. Um, and if you are going to stay on Earth, then Hector needs major reworking. It wasn't a bad portrayal by Skarsgård, but like it was just strange and not really well explained. Like, we don't know that they know each other, the three of them, this quote-unquote love triangle until the dinner. And, like, it's just very rushed. Like, even a simple establishing shot of Hector being involved as a child in, in some of those flashback scenes would have been a little bit better. But, uh, you know, then the design of him basically being another version of the leader, um, you know, from the Incredible Hulk film... Uh, it, it was just odd. Uh, the scene where he goes crazy and like is just like tap dancing in the sky or er, in the air and throwing around um, Amanda Waller and his father is just weird. It's so cartoonishly goofy. Uh, so yeah, Hector needs some some major retooling on on the fundamental level. So um, this this might be um, you know sacrilegious or something to Green Lantern fans, but I've never really enjoyed Hector Hammond as a villain. Um, just does that that particular character never really grabbed me. And I've read several stories featuring Hector Hammond, and I don't think that there's ever been you know a definitive this is a really great Hector Hammond story. <laughs> I just don't think that he's. Like there's name recognition there, like people know Hector Hammond is a is a you know Green Lantern villain, but I don't think he's had any real standout stories. If so, please somebody tweet at me at that nerd Dave and let me know what the definitive Hector Hammond story is because I have not found it. Now, as far as him looking like the leader, I'm going to tell you that in the comic books, that's that's a whole nother level, dude. He is one ginormous head with a itty bitty tiny body attached. That's completely atrophied. It's like uh, the visual is much more arresting than what they did in the movie. Um, but I would go a step further and just say, cut him out. I, I either, either rework him completely or just excise him. If, I don't if think you make it all, I don't think he's needed. All, if you make it all parallax, I think that would like be much more clean and neat. Ugh, the parallax thing, you know. I think I'm going to talk more about that in my nerd commendation today. But the parallax thing is weird too. It's a, a very recent uh, Jeff Johns invention of the the this big like fear bug thing. It's just I've I've never been a huge fan of that, but but that's a whole nother story. All right, Dave, uh, your third and final fix for Green Lantern. Well, I think, and I kind of hinted at this in my second point. If you have to have Hal Star in this movie, if you're not willing to go with a Kyle Rayner or John Stewart um, or or a Guy Gardner, uh, then then you, you're going to have to fundamentally change who the focus of the movie is. You cannot make the, f the focal relationship 
be the relationship uh, between Hal Jordan and Carol Ferris because it's it's not enough to sink your teeth into. It, it's just not. So then what are we going to do instead? Well, here is a love-hate relationship if there's ever been one, and one of the most complex relationships in Green Lantern comics, and that is the relationship between Sinestro and Hal. Now, there is, you know, so much mutual respect. Uh, Hal used to look up to him. Um, Sinestro appreciated Hal. And then how these two people that, you know, at the very least had deep respect for each other ended up having to, you know, be on opposite sides, you know, showing that relationship disintegrating, uh, that would be a much more interesting movie. And really, at this point, shout out just to, to Mark Strong as Sinestro, who is the perfect casting and easily the best part of the movie. And my God, they didn't give him but diddly squat to do. And I hate, hate, hate that they do the post-credit sequence with him finding a yellow ring because it was so not earned. Sinestro needs to be at the highest heights and then be cast down to the lowest lows. And then he gets a yellow ring and then he comes back for his revenge. But man, it needs to be deep. It needs to be personal. There needs to be a strong relationship between Sinestro and Hal and none of those things existed. So if you want to go, you know, full Sinestro in the second movie, you have to make the central relationship of the story, the, the growing relationship, and then the disintegrating relationship between Hal and Sinestro. I think, I think that's where the movie is. It's not on Earth, and it's not between Hal and Carol. It's it's Hal and Sinestro. It's got to be that. That is where the movie's at, Chris. Yeah, I, I feel like that Gordon Ramsay meme when Mark Strong came on the screen. I was like, finally, some good effing food. Like, um, <laughs> it was, I was like, okay, this is it. And then you have a two minute scene, and it's at a, automatically the the rug is pulled out from under you. And then you know you have a little bit more at the end. Uh, towards the end and then the end credit scene. So I remember even, you know, when I watched this in 2014 was like, okay, well that movie was, that movie sucked, but maybe the sequel will be better because I'm interested to see where Sinestro goes from here. And I've come a long way and have a lot more content knowledge uh, as far as comic books go, uh, you know, since then. So revisiting it was a little bit different, but you know, so it, it, it was highly frustrating to have like a perfect casting like that. So horribly misused. Yeah, pitch perfect casting, horrible writing. You know, when you said a Gordon Ramsay meme, I pictured like you know when he has like the the, the two slices of bread on the ah, sides. Ah, the of idiot the sandwich. Like, yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe we can put the Green Lantern movie between two slices of bread. Just put the DVD right in there, and then you have your idiot sandwich meme. Because cl- clearly, it just did wasn't a very smart move from front to end. So, Chris, final fix. What have you got? Uh, just this was Attack of the Clones level bad dialogue uh, in between. You know, the people they had real like on screen chemistry. I'm I'm thinking like between Hal and Carol. Obviously, they had chemistry. Um, you know, but also shout out to Taika Waititi as Tom, the the nerd. Um, but like even some of the dialogue between uh, Hal and his best friend Tom was super dorky and like written by an eight-year-old. So we need a whole new script for this. I don't know what it's going to take sometimes for people who come in and aren't familiar with comic books to realize that they don't have to make it goofy to make it like comic books. They have to just treat these characters like they're real people and put real words under their mouth. 
I don't think that's that complicated. Just let them talk the way people talk. And then you add the fantastical element on top of that, and it will be fine. It will be believable. Um, but yeah, the dialogue is pretty atrocious in this. I mean, I, I don't have a moment that stands out to me like, you know, sand. Yeah. But I, I feel like a couple of times it gets close. But you know what? I'm going to say one thing. I, w- I want to say something good about the movie. I have to say that it was so nice to see a movie fully give credit to the fact that domino masks do not hide your identity. Yes. I found it very refreshing. And one of the few good scenes in the movie when Carol looks at Green Lantern and, and after just like one up close look, she's like, wait, hell? You know, like, yeah, you know, like his hair is exposed, his chin is exposed, his cheekbones are exposed. She said, because I couldn't see your cheekbones. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely hilarious that we still act like the domino mask hides your identity from people that know you. Uh, no, they don't. Um, so so I found that incredibly amusing. That was the one point where I thought the dialogue was dipped into the realistic. Like, oh my God, that's really what probably would happen if you tried to disguise your voice and just wear a little domino mask in front of somebody who's known you their whole lives. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's also very speechifying. Am I wrong here? Yeah, I yeah feel it's like very, grand, very grandstandy, yeah. Yeah, especially on Oa. Like, I wanted to see, you know, Sinestro kick butt, but I think he delivered like two speeches. Um, not, not really what Sinestro is known for. <laughs> yeah. But sure. Yeah, you're right. The dialogue was not very good. Uh, just a complete overhaul of the dialogue would be real good here. All right. Those are our fixes for Green Lantern. That was pretty quick and seamless. Um, if you did watch it or if you remember it closely enough, what are your fixes that you would apply to the film? Be sure to hit us up on social media at NerdByWord on Twitter and Instagram or individually that nerd Dave and that nerd Chris. But after this, we're going to hit you with some more nerd commendations, the good stuff. All right, we are back here for our final segment, the stuff that we love and we want to share with you, our listeners. Dave, I know it's on brand for today's episode, but hmm. Yeah, so I was struggling last night coming up with something to read after my rather extensive Gail Simone read of the DCU. (laughs) I've just been following Gail Simone from book to book. And now that that's over, I just kind of was sitting there looking at DC Universe Unlimited thinking, what can I read? What can I read? Maybe I should read something Green Lantern related considering we're getting ready to do this episode. So I just clicked on the first thing that came up, and lo and behold, it had to be a book created by two of the most problematic individuals on the face of the earth when it comes to comic books right now. But if I divorce myself for a second from who created it, I think it's fair to nerd commend Green Lantern Rebirth. Um, Even though it established some things that I don't like, I have to freely admit that it executed it flawlessly. So what was the problem here? Well, the problem was that DC Comics wanted Hal Jordan back as Green Lantern, which was a tall order considering that Green Lantern had gone crazy, killed the entire Green Lantern Corps, taken the uh, central power battery energy for himself, became a villain called Parallax, and repeatedly tried to basically destroy the universe and reboot it in his own image. That seems to be a place that might be a little bit difficult to come back from. The guy charged with accomplishing this goal was our friend Jeff Johns. 
And on our duties, we have... <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so what actually uh, Jeff Johns accomplished here was exactly that. He came up with a way to get Hal Jordan back by making Parallax a separate entity, a uh, yellow fear bug, if you will, that had possessed Hal Jordan. And this is something that Hal himself had not been aware of. And he was, you know, blaming himself for all the horrible things he had done, which is a very good place for Hal to be, by the way, because there was a, some introspection going on, which is not usually something that he spends a lot of time on. So the current Green Lantern uh, at the time was Kyle Rayner, but he had uh, figured out a way to make more Green Lantern rings from a singular ring. And so John Stewart was back in active duty. Kilowog had a, a ring again as well. And, and Kyle was kind of trying to spread the love. And he's out in space. He figures out that Parallax is actually a, a entity and it's, you know, going to head for Earth soon. So he races back. And uh, one of the things that they decide to do is that they need Hal Jordan back to, you know, defeat Parallax. So this story basically is the return of Hal Jordan. And again, uh, Kyle is given his respect. John is given his respect. Guy Gardner is given his respect. John's is acutely aware that each one of these Green Lanterns has their fans and that any of those fan groups might feel displeasure with Hal coming back and being the primary Green Lantern again. So he he pays homage to each one of those characters in a lot of ways um, and repeatedly has Hal Jordan himself show them deep respect. Um the story is zippy. It goes through uh, a lot of DC Comics lore, but explains everything really well. Um, it hits you with a massive retcon in the parallax yellow fear bug thing. Um, and although I'm not a big fan of the retcon itself, I will admit that it opened the door to a lot of interesting stories uh, that spun out of this. Once Green Lantern got a regular ongoing book that came out of this uh, miniseries. So, you know, if you're looking for Hal Jordan content that's interesting, that's good, and that actually has him, you know, trying to kind of come to grips with some stuff that have happened to him and actually be more than just a stick in the mud, then Rebirth is probably the place to start. Okay. Um, so th this is very, very interesting because, as I said previously, like Green Lantern is one of the most intriguing characters, ideas in all of DC. So when I'm looking for new DC content, that's usually where I skew. Now, granted... I'm currently basking in the greatest Green Lantern story, one of your previous nerd commendations that I'm taking my sweet, sweet time on because it's only 12 issues and I don't want it to end. I am smack dab in the dead center of Far Sector. Oh, Far Sector. <laughs> so that is glorious and wonderful. And this is just another, yet another reminder to go read Far Sector. It's perfect in every way. Probably the greatest comic book art I have ever seen. Jamal Campbell, like, is outside of his mind with that and some of the most pinpoint accurate writing and succinct social commentary by way of a sci-fi comic book like that is crazy by nk jemison so i'm i'm coloring outside the lines here but um i'm also dabbling in some of the ron mars kyle rayner stuff at your recommendation but dave there i'm i'm i'm, I'm going off the rails here but that's okay 
Um, I'm going off the rails kind of like uh, Hal Jordan's uh, Hot Wheels car did in the Green Lantern film. Um, Good lord, man. That was just so lame. Dave, I am constantly intrigued by two characters and I don't know where to start with them. Simon Boz and Jessica Cruz. Oof. So uh, they came along a little later, um, post... Post-rebirth? Well, actually, Simon... Yeah, post-rebirth. Okay. It, it, rebirth is sort of the starting point of Hal back in the spotlight. Uh, I know Simon Bass was actually introduced by Jeff Johns, if I remember correctly. Um, Jessica Cruz may have been too. I kind of missed her introduction. But there is a whole series called Green Lanterns that was part of, I think, the Rebirth initiative. Not Green Lantern Rebirth, but like the line-wide Rebirth thing that DC did after the New 52. And that is uh, Simon Boz and Jessica Cruz as partners. Um, and so that would be probably the book for you. And I, and I don't want to say that Green Lantern Rebirth is the perfect entry to Hal Jordan. I still think that probably uh, goes with uh, Secret Origin. Um, kind of t- tells his tale. But I would say that his, his like how he became Green Lantern and everything. But I would say that Rebirth is a close second. Um to, to secret origin as far as just like being a good a good point to kind of get a sense for who Hal Jordan is. Really testing the strengths of separating art from artist here, aren't we? You are not <laughs> kidding, man. I, I I had to say a few Hail Marys as I was reading. It just did not feel so dirty. <laughs> all right, Chris, what is your nerd commendation this week? Well, dude, um, after all of our years of friendship, I had no idea that you were a baseball fan. So that was a real a real revelation that that came out of our deep space nine uh episode so with that bearing in mind i'm going to go to my other significant nerddom of sports and i'm going to nerd commend mlb the show which i still can't believe is on xbox game pass like that's absolutely nuts to me and you boot it up you load it up and it still says sony interactive studios or whatever like all the sony like iconography of like the buttons and the shapes and everything it's crazy but it's on game pass and i really really enjoyed last year uh i tried it it was far too difficult um gameplay wise for me as someone who struggles with my reaction time due to my health conditions but this time as soon as you boot up the game it lets you try out the different control options and so I found the sweet spot for me, and that was a marked difference this year. And so I am working my way up through the minor leagues. Uh, I was drafted by uh, the Chicago Cubs organization. So uh, my first baseman is slowly but surely progressing. And I, I'm a fan if I have to, when it comes to sports games, I know some people like to create themselves as a 99 overall. I've never been a fan of that. So I started off as like a 54 overall and I have to play each game and perform well and progress. And it's much more realistic and believable. And so like I'm in this for the long haul. I also like that when you play games, it's from your player's perspective. So it fast forwards to interactions. This is the road to the show mode, I should say. If you're a fan of playing like franchise, that's great as well. Or single exp- single exhibition games. I'm specifically uh, talking right now about the road to the show uh, where you create your character and go through the whole individualistic uh, aspect of the game. But um, it fast forwards to your plate appearances, your at-bats, or if a ball is hit to you and you have to field. So I'm heavily enjoying uh, most of my free time is spent playing MLB The Show 22 on Xbox Game Pass. 
See, that sounds really good. Uh, that was one of the barriers always for me is that it was predominantly, you know, a Sony franchise. And, you know, I, I play a little bit on, on Sony devices, but I've been mostly an Xbox guy for a long time. So seeing that pop up on Game Pass is still nutter butter to me as well. Uh, I've not really dived into this yet, but I'm very, very curious. Um, not much of a baseball player myself, much more of a like a spectator. I really enjoy the vibe, especially of, of, of live games. So I'm, I'm very excited to see how that translates to video games. I'm, I'm very excited to give this one a try, Chris. All right, that wraps up the 101st episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We thank you so much for your time, for listening along with us. If you like what you hear, please be sure to hit that subscribe button on the podcast platform of your choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or nerdbyword.com. And find us on social media where we are just chomping at the bit to interact with you. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at Nerd by Word and individually at that nerd Chris and at that nerd Dave. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd by Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.